This is a Podcast 225 production. The issues. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? The people. Carl Dabity. We've got Michael Shingleton. Taylor Moore. Jay Darden. Congressman Garrett Gray. Richard Condon. He is Ryan Clark. Sharon Weston Broom. The podcast. And we're going to talk about that. This is The Clay Young Show. Up, up, and away we go with episode 205 of The Clay Young Show here on podcast 225.com and on the Apple Podcast app. Hopefully you are enjoying your day or afternoon wherever you are. Thank you for hopping aboard with us here at podcast225.com. Man, the summer is really off and running right now. Got to tell you, the temperatures in Louisiana have been different, especially today. As I, as I record this, got up this morning and was just surprised at how pleasant it was without all that humidity outside but I'm not complaining not a cold weather guy so it's good to be back with you okay you know we talk a lot about what's happening in communities and I think that everyone out there listening will agree that at the centerpiece of a thriving community is a good public school system And across the state of Louisiana, that's always one of the top subjects that people are getting into. What's happening with schools? And you can see how a community is doing or see a reflection of a community's success based upon how well the public school system works. Well, on this edition of The Clay Young Show, we've got a member of the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. We call it the Bessie Board down here. His name is Tony Davis. And Tony has... uh, has been someone that I've known for a little while and has been on the Bessie board now for one term. He's coming up on re-election. I saw him a couple of weeks ago and talked with him about coming on the show and having a conversation about public education. He's up in the northwestern part of Louisiana covering the left top Caddo Bossier Parish all the way south to, I believe, Vernon Parish. And he's from Natchitoches, Louisiana, went to a college there, uh, raises his family there. And he's got a perspective on a great number of things as it relates to education. And listen, these Bessie positions are polarizing depending on where you are. Because public education can be a polarizing subject, if you can believe that. And I wanted to talk with Tony about what the system is doing. The system has a $3.8 billion a year operating budget in Louisiana. I believe every child can learn. And in some poorer communities, there is more difficulty there because of what the kids are encountering in their home atmosphere. And I do think that it requires a nuanced approach to making certain that these kids get the opportunity to learn because every child, regardless of zip code, deserves an opportunity to have a sound education. And listen, there are lots of people who work in the system, teachers who work hard every day. And I think that if you've ever been involved, and I've actually done work with school districts, and if you've ever been able to see 
some of these teachers at work, they're like artists when it comes to getting a child's attention, keeping a child's attention, and then in that process, teaching them something at the same time. And then the passion that so many of them have really is underrated in society. Now, having said that, I do think that the scrutiny that the public pay, uh, you know, uh, puts on the way tax dollars are spent in public education is not a bad thing. And look, I, I, I know... I, I know some people who work in central offices at school systems. I mean, I know, obviously, as you know, because he's been on the show before, the superintendent in Caddo Parish, Dr. Lamar Gorey, and all that they're doing up there to try to impact and, and help kids. And then at the same time, Warren Drake in the capital region where my office is based out of works hard for the same reasons. And some of the politics that gets involved in this is what really stymies the potential to make it better. So I wanted to have a conversation with Tony Davis about that and and get his thoughts, not just on that, but where we're going and some of what has just happened in the legislative session, namely the pay raise, quote unquote, air quotes, you can't see them that I'm using here for teachers, $1,000 a year, not $1,000 a month, $1,000 a year, and all of the back and forth over $1,000 a year, not $1,000 a month. $1,000 a year, and no, your audio is not on loop. I said that twice, just for emphasis sake. It was pretty stupid. It's pretty stupid. When you're going to under-tip somebody, don't make a big deal about it. I'm just saying. So how about the education system and what we're doing in Louisiana and its impact on our communities? How about we get an answer? Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. Hi, this is Mayor Sharon Weston-Broom inviting you to listen to the We BR podcast, an initiative of my Women's Advancement Commission. Our show will air the first and third Wednesday of each month. We invite you to listen to our podcast by visiting www.podcast225.com. That's www.podcast225.com and by subscribing through the Apple Podcast app. That's We Be Our Podcast. This is The Clay Young Show. Back with Tony Davis, who is a member of the Louisiana Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. We call it the Bessie Board here in Louisiana, Tony is a first-term member of the Bessie Board and is going to be a candidate coming up here uh, to run for re-election for the Bessie Board. He's over in Natchitoches, known as the meat pie capital of the world. Don't mind me, because I only learned that two week, two years ago. Uh, and, <laughs> and <laughs> But uh, he's on with us. Tony, how's it going, brother? Man, it's going awesome. I'm sitting here in Natchitoches enjoying the, the beautiful sunshine and the beautiful scenery of the riverfront in Natchitoches downtown. It is really a beautiful community. If, if you've not been there and you're in Louisiana, it's worth the trip. A great bed and breakfast community. The Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame is there, and there's some business getting ready to take place at the Sports Hall of Fame coming up here uh, shortly anyway, isn't there? There absolutely is, and we've got some big names coming through. They induct eight every year, and 
I hear that old Les may be making an appearance here, and there's a uh, a Manning that's going to be making an appearance as well. And usually those folks can draw a pretty good crowds. Absolutely, Les Miles, who's now at Kansas, and of co- you know, of course, Archie Manning and. And, uh, and then Roger Kadar, who is a baseball legend from Southern University, is going in as well. And it's a, it's a great, great experience. You know, talk a little bit about Natchitoches, man. Brag on your community a little bit for people who may not know. Oh, you give me the chance to brag on Natchitoches? I love yeah, it. Yeah, I've lost my it. good sense, I know. Man, you know, it's Natchitoches is an amazing place. It is uh, a little bit out of step with North Louisiana. We're a little bit of, uh, a little bit of South Louisiana. We're the oldest right. permanent settlement in the Louisiana Purchase. A lot of folks know that, but don't really think much about that. But we were founded in 1714. That was four years before some of the same folks went south and started New Orleans. And uh, we've got a lot of really old buildings here. We've got some beautiful scenery. We've got a lot of things that, that people fall in love with, the sort of the look and feel of, of frankly, New Orleans. But we have that here in North Louisiana, and it's a great culmination of so many different uh, uh, just groups of people that have come together, the Spanish, the French, the Native groups. Um, we've got uh, an interesting overlap. I don't know of another place in Louisiana that actually has a landmark historic district, uh, the Kane, uh, the, the National Heritage Area, and the Park Service all in such an overlap. Uh, and it's just really awesome in terms of the culture and the history. But even more so than that, we've got Northwestern State University here, so we have the, the, the sort of the, all the things that go with having a regional university uh, with athletics and with the Creative Performing Arts and everything else. The Louisiana Scholars College is in Natchitoches. The Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts, one of the nation's top high schools, a three-year residential school, is right here in Natchitoches. The National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, which is, a, uh, which is the training facility for the National Park Service. Whether they're looking to uh, repair a dock in Boston, they're looking at an old uh, settlement from uh, gold miners on the West Coast, if they're trying to repair and preserve it, uh, make it here for stay for posterity and for viewing, they're learning techniques for doing that right here in Natchitoches, Louisiana. So uh, we cover a great deal. We've got the low areas of Cane River, the National Heritage down the river. We've got Red River here, the rolling hills of Kasachi. So if you're thinking about it, man, we've got you've got you covered here in Natchitoches. Man, that was that was masterfully done, and you got through it. Still not mentioning the meat pies. <laughs> well, you did you did give me an opening for that, and now you've said it again. Uh, but absolutely, <laughs> meat pies are, are well known in this area. Uh, everyone's got their own recipes. There are some tremendous. Uh, we have a lot of fun taste testing to see who's got the best recipe this year. I don't know if anyone changes it from year to year, but I like to go through all of them just in case. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to make sure I give everyone a, a fair shake of the thing. Well, you know, it's interesting because it is known as the meat pie capital of the world, and I actually had my first and only meat pie at Lajon's in Natchitoches, and it was a revelation, my man. So, you know... It- it is, it, it, and it, and it's interesting because the community is 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 so wonderful. But to this, you represent the fifth Bessie district, and you talked about uh, excuse me, the fourth Bessie district. Gary Jones is the is the fifth Gary yep. district uh, Bessie district, and uh, a big a big part of what you do on a daily basis as a Bessie board is you act as the school board for the state of Louisiana, much in the way that uh, a, a school district has a school board. Correct. That is correct. And and if you were to name your priority as we just wrap up the school year in Louisiana, what was your priority going into last year, and what do you see on the horizon as you look towards 1920? Uh, You know, I think it's really three things. Uh, 
Uh, we have maintained uh, strong accountability and high standards, and I want to make sure we continue to do that, that we're, that we're holding the course on that. We've done that for years now. We're seeing some big gains from that. You saw some record graduation rates, and I, and I attribute that to the accountability we've put in place over the last uh, eight years or so. And, and I'm really excited about going forward with that. But for me personally, outside of that, it's the uh, workforce that we do, uh, the workforce development that we do through Jumpstart, and additionally all the work that we do in early childhood education. Louisiana is a, is a national leader, really, in so many ways in the birth through five spectrum. And so I've been very involved on sort of both ends of that, uh, both in the early, early education years, but also with our juniors and seniors in Jumpstart. I think both of those programs are incredibly important sort of capstones on each end of that spectrum, uh, and all of that is tied together through our accountability systems. It's it's interesting because, and I referenced it early on, with the, the way education works in 2019 versus 25, 30 years ago, you're dealing with, with so much more socioeconomic information than maybe was available in years gone by, but also the technology out there does make it interesting when you're talking about educating children, specifically young children. What is the model for public education in Louisiana if someone does not know? Like, what's the doctrine? Well, I'm I'm not sure where you're going with that, but I'll tell you that that sort of the, not to say model or doctrine, but to add another word in there, sort of the mantra for this is that we know that every single kid has great capacity to learn. And every kid in Louisiana has the capacity that every other kid in the world has. And so when we think about where our kids are performing versus kids in Texas or in the southeast or in this country or in the world, there's no reason for our children not to perform at the same high levels as the highest levels in the world. Uh, so one of the things that we reiterate through all of our programming as we look at policies for the K-12 system is how are we making sure that we are providing resources necessary for teachers and educators in the classroom to make sure that they are not only putting a high bar in front of the students but helping them get over that bar that they're learning the materials and they're mastering the materials to go to the next level, that they're learning critical thinking, that they're getting exposure to a wide variety of information, that we know that they're getting, that we're having, we have accountability in place, we have testing in place, and that we can measure that and get them to the next stage so that they can compete on a global, uh, global stage. And so, uh, you know, when you think about what our model looks like, everything is based off of knowing, absolutely knowing, believing, that every child in Louisiana has this amazing capacity. It's up to us to make sure we're helping them reach that capacity. It's it's the the legislative session you know that's that's gone by. The fiscal session is about has had a prong in it that dealt with teacher pay raises, and it was interesting the the fire back and forth over a thousand dollar pay raise for teachers and a five hundred dollar pay increase for support staff and. Just one man's opinion, but I'm wondering, why in the hell was there so much anger and angst back and forth over a grand a year for educators? I mean, it seems like an argument over pennies, don't you think? I, I do. I think it's uh, it's frankly an unnecessary and silly argument, uh, just to, to be very clear about that. Uh, the reality of it is that our educators deserve so much more, but our systems need more as well. And, and that is not to say that we should be writing checks and just doing, right. firing off blank checks and putting more money in the system. It's right. far from that. Right. But when we look at the amount of data that we work with um, in this context, and you referenced this earlier, we have so much information at our fingertips. And one of the things that we're looking at is we can identify the weak areas in our middle school math. And so when we think about teachers needing more money, I want all teachers to, to have the opportunity to make more money, but I want to make sure that we're also – 
prioritizing that we have a strong need for certificated teachers in these in these high uh, needs uh, subject areas. We need to make sure we have those folks doing that. So when it comes down to putting more money, let's make sure that we're getting the right personnel in these schools that do need them at the right ages to make sure that we're keeping uh, strong progression for our students at the ages. When you look at the systems, uh, the, the actual school districts themselves, this funding, uh, one of the, the major issues in addressing this funding package was $39 million that would be put in what we call level one of the formula, which is uh, essentially a per-pupil increase. Right. And historically, you hear reference to we are supposed to get, air quotes, we are supposed to get a 2.75% increase in that level one. And that very rare, rarely, if ever, happens. I want to say it might have happened one time, perhaps in the last uh, eight or ten years or so. Uh, I'd have to go back and check on that. But, but frankly, it just doesn't happen much. And yet every year you hear we're supposed to get that. Well, that's not written anywhere that you, that you do get that. And we have been in such, such financial strain in Louisiana for so long now that it really has not been an option. So I am glad uh, to be able to have additional money go in for that funding. But we have to be realistic, too. We need to continue to put more money into that. The school systems need more money to better address the various needs of the kids in the classroom. But one of the things that, and this is almost a digression that we could get into or not get into, Clay, but uh, Louisiana is not unique, but certainly uh, in the minority of states who fund the unfunded accrued liability, the retirement matches, into uh, the student funding formula. So our MFP, which is where we're putting money into funding education for our kids, is is being cannibalized by these retirement dollars that are coming out of there. 26 and 29% approximately for the certificated, non-certificated um, personnel that are getting these raises. So you're now looking at anywhere from, you know, 25 cents or more, 25 to 30 cents on every dollar that gets sucked away immediately into retirement benefits and matching costs that is and that issue is so multi-layered because you talk about the the weight that it puts on the remainder of the school system's budget i mean it's it's about a 3.8 billion dollar a year budget is it not correct and and then you've got this section that's in there but on the other side of it is at the commencement of these these employments with the system, these folks were promised this and, you know, they've kind of done their part to earn it. And so now you're in a situation where someone is asked to give up something that they in in good faith worked for. But on the other side, you see the weight it's, it's putting on the rest of the system. How how do you kind of solve that conundrum? Because it's, it's a big one and it is not going away. It is quite frankly, over time, likely to get worse. Well, I'll tell you, it's not likely to get worse. It has been getting worse and will continue to get worse. And it's going to outpace our ability to offset it, I'm afraid. So, you know, when you ask how do you solve this, certainly I would not pretend to be the expert in the room on that, although I am very confident that we have folks in our state who can provide good, solid, data-driven decisions and and, um, solutions to this problem. And I think that in the simplest terms, you don't take anything from those who have earned it. The folks who have vested in the system, they, they've actually, they have vested. I mean, they have earned those dollars, and I don't take that away from them in any way, uh, philosophically or, or fiscally. Don't take that away from them. But I think it's a reality that we have to face that uh, just in education, as in many, many, many other professions, we're not going to get uh, a college graduate who's 22, 23 years old is not going to go into a classroom this fall 
and stay there for 30 years. Right. In fact, I would argue they won't stay there for 10 years. Unfortunately, and this gets to be a bit of a, uh, you start you start putting correlation where and causation gets confused here, but we have many who won't stay three or five years. And, and then so there's an argument of saying, well, we've got to do more to support our teachers. That's why they're leaving. And I would say, well, we want to do more to support our teachers. Absolutely. Full stop. Whether or not they're leaving because of what we're supporting or not supporting is a different conversation. Because the computer programmers, software engineers, maintenance technicians, they're also leaving in three and five years if they're that age. So it's not uh, just in the educator profession. But, but if we know that many, not all necessarily, but many uh, are not going to stay long term, I think our models have to reflect that. I don't think they currently do. And I think there ought to be, uh, I think it's relatively simple perhaps perhaps too simplistic in my view, but it ought to be simple to put in a bit of a hybrid program that allows for those who've been in the system to maintain their what they have coming to them, but to give some option for portability or a different actuarial methodology for those who are coming into the program uh, now. This just simply doesn't make sense for the one-size-fits-all, but we know the world is changing. And, and these kinds of conversations, quite frankly, have been at the center of the table for a very long time. And I, and I believe that that's a frustration that so many in the public have with this. It's like, this is not unknown. Before you became a member of the Bessie board and even 10 years before that, these are the kinds of conversations that have been that have been going on. Quite frankly, it mirrors some of what we see nationally with Social Security. And so the question becomes, OK, if all of these adults in, in the room, many of them educated, many of them experienced in business, can see that this problem is there. Why can't we come to, to some solution that if, if at best could mitigate some of the damage being done by the crappy way that this was all set up? I don't know why we haven't come together. Uh, you know, the, the uh, sort of that dirty little word politics comes to mind, and there's, <laughs> there's, there's certainly a lot of different opinions uh, for why it hasn't come together. But uh, I do think that we, when you take this and you zoom out a little bit and you look at the context of we've now secured in the formula for this session, <clears throat> excuse me, we've now secured in the formula for this session the raises that we refer to and the level one increase, the purple increases for these systems. So it's about $140 million more going into the formula. And what I mean by going into the formula, that means that now it will recur. It's protected within that formula constitutionally. So that will be in there for the next school year and the next school year and so on and so forth. That's a wonderful win. That is a win not only in the real dollars, although we need more, but in the sense that we did commit to those dollars. We need to commit to more dollars. The reality, though, is those dollars are very limited. They're very, very limited. And the ongoing debate as the session will wind down is relative to uh, how limited are those dollars. So if we're, gonna, if we're going to have a priority on the one hand of funding more in education at all levels, then on the other hand, we're going to have to find some way to better allocate the scarce resources that we have. We cannot ignore retirement and its rising cost and continue to put more money into the system. The money is not growing that quickly. So we're going to have to find some creative solution that says we've got to reduce some of the cost bases in areas where we cannot simply increase the revenue side of it. And, and I think that is sometimes uh, those need to be those conversations have to happen together. And they tend to happen on opposite sides of the room, opposite sides of the building, opposite parts of the state. And we're not really looking at this together and saying, hey, look, this is one is helping the other, specifically helping the other. You want to prioritize putting more funds into a school system? You don't want to put more new dollars? Then let's figure out how to make more of the dollars that are there. And that involves 
reforming the retirement systems, among other things. And on a scale of one to 10, 10 being it's a guarantee that it's going to happen, one being that it isn't going to happen in the, in the very near future, near future being the next five years, where, where are you? For uh, my confidence in reforming the yes. retirement system? Uh-huh. I'm going to put it about a five. I don't okay. know if I'd go higher than five. Uh, I think that a few years ago I would have been less than that. Um, I would love to say I'm higher, but I think a five. And, and I mentioned that. We've got, um, for instance, Senator Beryl Peacock brought forth some legislation last year that would have helped address some of this. That was not signed into law. I think that, uh, and I won't, I, I don't know, I won't say that it was or was not perfect legislation, but it certainly was an effort that made some, some good progress there. And I think that we can see more of that, whether it's from Senator Peacock or it's from others uh, that are addressing the situation. So I think it's getting a little bit more attention. I do think it's going to need more attention and more of a teamwork approach to it to really make the change. What I'm hoping and what I'm a little bit uh, optimistic for is that if we can come together, as we have shown we can, to put more money into the K-12 system, that again, if we maintain the mentality that it needs more and more funding, then inevitably that leads, lends itself to saying, at what point are there no new dollars for this, and yet a priority to continue putting more resources into the system, that inevitably means you've got to start addressing other pieces of it. What are the costs associated with it, and how do we help address those costs? One of the other things that that you have seen dealt with in districts across the state, I mean, your, uh, your district, District 4, goes all the way up to the, you know, north a west corner of Louisiana with Caddo and Bozier all the way down to, to Vernon Parish. And there are poorer communities that are in the midst of school consolidations. And that is a political you know, landmine field, depending on the community. But it is something that the, pop, the population of children who have the wherewithal for private school is shrinking. We see the same thing in East Baton Rouge Parish, where I am right now, that kids are either in private schools or they're moving, you know, the parts of the parish like Zachary and Central or out of the parish for the benefit of public education. That does have an impact on the way systems work. Now, from a from a standpoint of being a Bessie member who represents all those areas but may not be in the minutia of, of their politics and what's going on, to a citizen of a community that you want to see thrive – First, what's your perspective on this, on the school consolidation issue and on the flight out of schools that's happening, not just in your district, but across the state? So when you talk about the flight out of schools, I want to talk about that. You know, when we when you when you put these two issues together, flight out of schools and school consolidation, Mm -hmm. I think it's we have it's really important to think about the order there. And, And again, I referenced this earlier, causation and correlation. Yeah. You know, we should not be. We have to really stop thinking about root cause here. If students are leaving the schools, why are they leaving the schools? If they're going to private schools, and if we're running into an issue because so many are leaving and yet they cannot afford private schools or there are not options for them, what is causing that kind of internal stress? Why is a family saying we're going to use our last dollar to put our child into a private institution when we're already paying public tax dollars to cover a free education? That's a, that's a big discussion to be had in and of itself. And then when you think about closing the school, absolutely, and, and I've seen that in several districts, uh, several uh, respective parish districts within my District 4, Northwest Louisiana, 
we've had several uh, school boards in Bentley who've had to deal with school closures, building closures, and it is a it is a tremendous issue, especially for for really old schools, schools who have a long legacy, a strong and proud legacy, and we've seen that happen. The reality of it is. When you boil the conversation down, it's going to be about transparency and communication to the public. You can close the school down as a school board because you're trying to save some money in this year's fiscal budget or next year's fiscal budget, and that's one thing. But you need to have a really good reason and plan for how you move forward from that point. And I've seen districts that have said, well, you know what, we're going to close this down. We've got to save the money. It just isn't cost-effective to put kids in this school to, to bust them over here or do this and yet not really have a plan for the public of, of how this is step one of, say, seven steps back to financial solvency. And rather, it's just the one step of one. We're closing down the school. We're going to see some immediate benefit from that, and we'll figure the rest out later. The public does not do well with that. I, as a parent, would not do well with that. I don't right. think that we as citizens want to see that kind of lack of planning from our elected leaders. So I think that the school boards have to work diligently to, to build out a plan and when they have to close the school system, it needs to be a step one, I suppose, or step three, you know, what else can you do before you get to that point, of a longer-term plan. And the public just needs to be well aware of those. So, you know, it is never an easy decision to close the school down, but I hope that as the local school boards look at those decisions, that they're making them in the best interest of a long-term plan, not as a knee-jerk reaction. And the public will judge accordingly, it's, and they will based on the information that they have in front of them. Now, when you go back and tie the two together, though, I'm closing the school down because there's not enough students for that school. I think it's important to think about what are all the different factors in that. We know we're losing some population in Louisiana. We know that people move back and forth. That's why we have a census every 10 years to kind of show how populations shift. Unfortunately, we see a lot of decline in the economy of many of our rural parishes. I see that in some of the areas that I represent, but I see that across a lot of Louisiana. Uh, as an economic developer, former chamber president, I'm, I'm very tuned in to, to watching these things occur, to seeing the cycles that lead to this, uh, the signs of it. And, and it's really a shame because it's really not necessarily – while the end result is a student moving out of public school building A and needing an option for a private school in building B or, or somewhere else, man, they may not be moving because they don't like that school. They may be moving out of the entire parish. They may be moving out of the state. Their parents may have to move them. They may not be able to afford anything. They can't afford to have a, a lunch or even get to school. They, they're a long bus route. The timing doesn't work. There's, there's so many different factors that go into why a student is not entering that school building anymore. And unfortunately, more and more we're seeing the ramifications of rural areas that cannot grow, increase, or increase their economies where families are forced to move out of those areas to find better opportunities for their families. And, and, and I respect that they're making those moves. It's unfortunate for those areas that are losing population, but I think that we're going to have to look at that, we being sort of the state the, the, with Bessie and the Department of Education, saying what can we do to help assist in these areas where they frankly cannot get the economies of scale necessary to operate successfully. And I, that's a relatively new issue, but one I think we're going to have to face more and more over the next four or five years. Uh, so well said, and I think when you because the perspective from from the two perspectives here of the many from the system standpoint, I think you will agree is they're often protective of and defensive about their style of running a system. But on the outside, as it relates to parents, 
all they really care about is what's happening with their children and couldn't give two flips about what people inside of district office or, quite frankly, in the Department of Education think they want the best for their kids. And and sometimes I think that the difference between those two sides gets lost in the shuffle when someone makes a decision. They're not really thinking about the impact it has on the district or, and in some cases, quite frankly, even other children. They're thinking first priority about the children in their homes. Before I get to the second part of this, do you think that that's a fair reflection of, of, how, of how that Absolutely. is? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mom or dad or mom and dad are worried about junior. You know, yep. they want their kid to be taken care of. The rest are minor details of them. So, you know, absolutely agree with your assessment of that. So now, with that being the reality, how do you then convince people on the fence to stay and say, hey, look, I understand what the media may be saying about the, the system as it exists, how, but, but here are some reasons why you should stick around. Well, you know, frankly, I don't know that I'd make that argument if it's an economic situation. Hmm. You know, you have to have a job. If you're in an area, and I, and I hate to name names, and especially in areas I may not be as familiar with, but uh, if there simply is not a job that can pay a living wage for you and your skill set to support your family, whether it's through one parent or two parents, then you have to make a tough call on that. And it's not my role on Bessie, nor is the local school board or the school, uh, the superintendent or the principal who's going to say, no, you need to stay here, have some faith. That's not the situation. Now, that's not the situation why kids are leaving every time, as I alluded to a while ago. Sometimes they're leaving because mom and dad have said, you know what, they're just simply not getting taken care of in this school. I don't like the, the safety factor. I don't like the environmental factor, the, the condition of the school building. I don't like uh, the level of education I think they're getting or the programs that are, they're, that are accompanying that education or any number of those factors. When those are the situations, I think that, yeah, it's probably beholden for the for the superintendent of the school board member of the principal to say, please, please, please stay with me, but here's my plan. Here's why I'm asking you this. And I think, unfortunately, too many cases we don't have a plan. There's not a proactive approach to saying, here's how we're going to make this better. It's reactive of we're having to close this building because of this, and now we've got to save the money. We're going to figure it out for next year. We have this, or we're, we're mandated to do these things, or it's, it's poor piddle for me. You alluded to a while ago that many systems are really, really um, defensive of how they are running the school building and the school system. Well, we certainly put some mandates from the state. We have to. You absolutely have to. It's important to have a state framework for that. Um, are they all perfect? Probably not. And I'm always open to discussions with administrators about how we can make sure those are actually beneficial at the ground level. But that being said, I think the school system as a whole, in this country as a whole, has got to start looking internally and thinking about what do we do a little differently. That is not a decision that should be mandated from the state level. It's a decision that should be discussed and perhaps instigated from the state level. But we've got to start looking at how we can do some things differently. We simply cannot continue and persist in doing things exactly the way we've done them for the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years. And then they're going to work out the same in the next 5 and 10 and 20 years. They're simply not going to. No, not, so not, there's, not there's at all. There's tons of variables involved in that, but lots of discussion to be had. And I hope healthy discussion. Well, I, and I agree with you. And, you know, and then from the other side, I think we will agree that there are, and in my opinion, I think the majority of people who work in public schools are some of the best of us because they're out there not getting rich doing the job and they're really invested in these kids. I mean, there are some amazing teachers 
in classrooms. And so I think from a system standpoint, they really are working hard. But there, there is something, and you and I had this conversation a week or so ago, and this is about the variable of life that you have no control over as an educator. You know, a kid comes to you from a tough situation, and the best you can do is provide an atmosphere and an opportunity for that kid to learn. And while that kid is there, you hope you can have an impact, but they go back to a tough situation and you can't control that. That is a major factor in a kid's ability to learn. I think every child can learn, but I think that their home environment has an impact on what happens when they get to school. And that's simply something you can't control or even really have much of an impact on. So what do you do about that? I wish there was a short answer for that. Um, number one, I, I agree. The, the home life is certainly an impact in school, um, good and bad. Uh, and, and, you know, unfortunately, the conversation as we're having this conversation, conversation is on the bad side of that. Um, and, and the reality of it is we've got to do as much as possible to provide as stable and loving and caring an environment as possible for these kids. Now, one of the things I advocate for so strongly is early child education. And because I, I, I recognize, believe, you know, I could even say, based on lots of information, anecdotally and, and data-driven, that having children in a strong academic setting, in a safe, vibrant uh, environment with people who love and nurture them, um, and from their earliest years forward, that prepares them to go into kindergarten and first grade ready and at their capacity to learn and move forward successfully. What we see, unfortunately, is too many children don't get that opportunity. And so, therefore, they enter at very different grades. They're all going to start at five or six years old in the kindergarten area, and they're going to go in this classroom. And so this teacher is going to have 15 kids at, at likely 15 different levels. And this is the point you're making, and it's very, very challenging. So I think that, frankly, knowing that we're going to progress them nearly every year, whether they're at the right level or not, and I hate to say that, but that happens too often. We see it happening often. We've got to do all we can the only time we've got a chance to catch them up is in those first few years. That's a scary proposition. It's a lot of pressure on us, but that's it. Because you don't get a summer to catch up. You don't get as much done in those two or three months. You've got to have those several years to get everyone on the right page. If they start at the right place, if they can start at a better place, at a more common kindergarten-ready type place, they can then move through the system appropriately. The teachers can do more with them. We have some great national evidence now, great national data, that shows that schools, and this is this is absolutely not uh, an indictment, this is just a fact, and, I, and I'm glad to see the data behind this, we don't do well at schools across this country in moving kids up more than about 1.2 grades at grade level. In other words, some of our best-performing schools across the country, not just Louisiana, but across the country, would still take five years to move a kid up a whole grade level in that time space. Now, the worst-performing ones may not move them up more than a half a grade or three-quarters of a grade in that one year, but the average is about a year. In other words, on average, our system is designed to do a great job of catching you in fourth grade and preparing you for fifth grade if you're fourth grade ready to go into the fifth grade. But we simply don't have the capacity to move you up one, two, or three grade levels, generally speaking, within one academic year. So there's no time to play catch-up. If you're two years behind your peers when you enter the school system, it's almost impossible to catch you up those two years at that point, which means we've got to do all that we can for as broad a swath of our population 
to make sure that they're all ready to go at the kindergarten, excuse me, at the kindergarten level. For those who are in the systems now, we have some systems in place to help offset that. You referenced this a while ago. We've got some absolutely amazing educators in our state. In fact, most of our educators are amazing. Yep. I've met amazing educators. I've met amazing principals, superintendents. We, In fact, I can tell you this for a fact. I have never met anyone that leads a classroom, a school building, or a district that I thought ever woke up and thought, how can I ruin a life today? I've never met that person. They have varying degrees of efficacy and how effective they are in, in, in helping move forward, but but everyone is trying and moving in the right direction. Some are just really amazing at it. Unfortunately, I don't have enough of the really amazing ones to, to move all the needles. So the short answer is I don't have the solution. I don't think anyone does. But I think what we have to continue to do is put as many resources into those classrooms for those children as possible. Those resources are more teachers, more pullout times, more interventions, more technology that can help and assist of, uh, to assist the learning um, we've just got to have a mentality that says no child left behind. I hate to use that's almost a, you know, a red flag. I was going to use that federal term there, but, but that's the reality. We've really got to have this mentality of we want to get, make sure everyone's there. And, and the worst scenarios, or we have those amazing teachers that are just their wits in because they can only do so much. They can only spend so many of their own dollars that are limited. They can only spend so many hours they have a family as well to take care of. And they, despite how amazing their pedagogy may be and their classroom uh, control and how they manage everything, they can only do so much. And they're going home frustrated because they've gone above and beyond but still can't quite get to where they need to get to. And so, you know, for those folks, I want to provide them and the classroom next to them and the building next to them and the district next to them as much as possible in terms of support from the department. I think that's one of the roles we have to play more of. Again, that's financial in many cases. But in other cases, it's, it's professional development opportunities. It's technical assistance. How can we do more and more? Because the reality of it is we've got to meet these kids where they are. If we're not going to be able to get them ahead and up to a common starting point before they start kindergarten, and we're working on that, we're making good progress, we're just not there. For those who aren't, aren't caught there, we've got to do more and more within those classrooms and buildings to help them out. And it just takes more resources. Very well said. And, and, you know, standing out, meeting these kids where they are and giving them an opportunity. I think this, in many cases, is the best way out of a tough situation for a young man and a young woman. And I think you will agree with me that the effort is worth it. If we take the shot and we have success and if we take the shot and we don't have success, it was still worth giving a child an opportunity to put themselves in a better situation later on in life, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I subscribe to the theory, the, old, the, the, the story of the old man throwing this, this, um, the starfish back out in the ocean. Everyone's yep. heard the vari- yep. variation of that story, you yep. know, and, and I'm, I'm that way. I, I think we have to do everything we can for every starfish, so to speak. Uh, we may not can do everything. We may not be able to affect everyone, but everyone we can affect, we absolutely must in a positive way. Tony Davis representing the 4th Bessie District here in Louisiana. It's a big district. you got about 11 parishes in that district? I've got 10, and it ten. runs, as you wow. mentioned earlier, from Vernon uh, in southwest West Louisiana up through uh, Caddo and Bossier and Webster in northwest Louisiana. It's a long way from yes. one end of that district to the other one. Lots of uh, different cultures and folks. And uh, but amazing part of the state. Proud to be from the Natchitoches Parish and right at the heart of that district, and uh, proud to represent the district. 
I mean, it's funny. It, there, there's only one other district to uh, the east of your district, and that's Dr. Gary Jones's district and and Bessie Five. And then below you, there's only one district, and that's Dr. Holly Boffy and in district seven. So, I mean, these are, these are, I think these are the three biggest districts of, of, of all of the, uh, all of the eight seats. Correct. That is correct. Wow. Well, listen, man, I appreciate it. Let's do this again as we get closer to the school year, because everybody's going to be in that mindset. And, uh, quickly here, I'll ask on the way out, if someone wants to learn more about you, where can they get that information? Thanks for going to be on the website, www.tonydavisforbessie.com. I've got information there, contact information, and more information about what I believe in and how we think we can move this thing forward. Thank you for being on, my man. This is Dr. Mary Catherine Roderick, and I'm Katie Fetzer. We're the owners and co-founders of The Wellness Studio, a mental health practice with locations here in Baton Rouge and Covington. We are also your host for The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com. Our podcast is a journey into the world of mental health. On our show, we're going to discuss some of the various forms of mental health conditions. We're also going to shed light on the various ways our listeners can get a better understanding of how the mind works and why we do what we do. So subscribe today to get The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com, iTunes, and the Talk 107 mobile app. Promote your business or organization on podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. This is The Clay Young Show. Thanks, Tony, for being on the show. I enjoyed that conversation. You got contact information on how to reach out to Tony. You know, there's just, I think that most people involved in a lot of these debates about higher ed are people who are well-intentioned. I really do believe that. I think most people have a perspective that may be different than others, but in many cases, they all, they are all trying to get to the same place. And that is do what they think is in the best interest of children, but we just have to remember that children are at the centerpiece of all of this. Not the bureaucrats, the children. And as a 1A to that, the people actually in the classrooms, the teachers. So it was a good talk, good talk. Next week, East Baton Rouge Parish Assistant District Attorney Will Jordan has an interesting story from where he came from and how he got to where he is, and he'll share that that with us in studio next week. Also, some OJ stuff going on here. And I was with Detective Tom Lang in New Orleans last week. He was down here for an event called CrimeCon. You've heard of uh, Comic-Con, right? CrimeCon. And we got a chance to kind of chat about that. I saw the convention I think Nancy Grace was down there, too. And he conducted a talk about the O.J. Simpson trial and the murders of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. And uh, and it was good. It was it was very well attended. He had a lot of people in there. And Tom did a great job, as always. He's very thorough in talking about that period. And it's 25 years ago. So I'm working on getting 
Tom on, and then someone from the National Law Enforcement Museum got a chance to meet a couple of ladies from there while I was in New Orleans. And as an aside, Tom and his wife got a chance to try a shrimp po' boy for the first time at Drago's in New Orleans. And they're still thanking me. <laughs> All right, y'all, have a great one. Don't forget, you can follow me on social media, Facebook. Really simple. Look for Clay Young on Twitter at Clay Young BR on the gram Clay underscore Young BR. You take care wherever you are. And thank you for being with us here on the Clay Young Show. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Clay Young Show.